0: This is Increment
1: Vice.
0: The podcast that explores Paul Thomas Anderson's inherent vice, one scene at a time, with your host, Travis Woods. Well, at long last, we're finally here. Put on a suit and tie, take the number two clippers to your hair, and bite into the lightning blast to the teeth cold of a frozen chocolate-covered banana. Because today's the day we tackle the unstoppable force, or is it immovable object, of Bigfoot Bjornsson, the foil and nemesis and brother and partner in shadow self to our wayward hero, Doc Sportello. Bigfoot is inherent vice in flat-topped and flinty microcosm, an exaggerated and fun-house-stretched portrait of loss and longing for times and people past. And today, we begin the first in a handful of episodes exploring the twisted mind and broken heart of this warped sheet of plastic as he drifts out of a commercial for Channel View Estates and materializes into that very real estate development just in time to catch his old buddy Doc catching a snooze next to what suspiciously resembles a bloodied corpse.
2: Well, after six scenes in which we've only viewed him tube-side as a faux stoner pitchman for Channel View Estates, we arrive, finally, at the old hippie-hating mad dog himself, in the flesh, LAPD Lieutenant Detective Christian F. Bigfoot Bjornson, SAG member, John Wayne Walk, flat top of Flintstone proportions, that evil shit twinkle in his eye that says civil rights violations. The man who has been referred to more than one time by the LA Times as a Renaissance detective, okay? And while this may be his first in-person appearance in the film, Bigfoot has come up in all six episodes of Increment Vice thus far for one simple reason. With the possible exception of Shasta Hepworth, he is by far the most complicated, cagey, and confounding figure in the film. And so, as far as this ridiculous podcast goes, this scene is some prime real estate. This is some front row seat shit right here. This is an episode of pure, uncut Bigfoot. And joining me on this journey is a man who has seen more crime movies More cop movies, more crime and cop movies, and just plain more movies than anyone else I know, and he's going to be bringing his big celluloid-cratered cerebellum to bear on this strange and perfect character. My guest today is also a fucking incredible crime writer, having penned the fantastic mud-and-blood-slicked rural noir Peckerwood, as well as the hard-boiled gothic novella Fierce Bitches, which, as an aside is a work of such compressed and brutal and bloodied romanticism that it reads like a rope-bound fusion of Bring Me the Head of Alfredo Garcia and William Friedkin's Sorcerer. And when he's not doing all of the above, he's maintaining the great noir literature, film, and culture website Hard Boiled Waterland. Chetidae Ayers, thanks for coming on today. Holy shit, don't stop. Keep going. <laughs> Well, i got to butter you up, so you'll be willing to talk to me for about an hour about this movie.
1: i would be good and slippy now, man.
2: Jeez. (laughs) I appreciate you coming in today to talk to me about this movie. And so let's just hop, skip, and jump right now back to 2014. And Inherent Vice has just dropped. Did you see it when it first came out?
1: I – no, I did not. I was – I wanted to. But the thing about 2014 is I was – starting a job uh where I work overnight and I was still at the time that the inherent vice came out I was still working overnight full time going to you know taking classes and then working a like 6 a.m. shift uh at a restaurant um in between you know parenting um uh, young children so I was so out of it I mean I I get memories from that time from other people that I knew they, they have to tell me hey remember when I'm like no and I said yeah you seemed pretty weird back then and like, well <laughs> I didn't have any sleep at all uh, for a good year and a half or so and so it landed right in that time and there was just I wanted to go see it didn't get to see it until it was out on uh on video and when I did see it uh, I liked it. I knew I liked it, and I knew I was going to like it more with repeat viewings. But it it didn't blow me away. Uh, I wasn't, uh, you know, I, it was one of those things where I was, I knew I was kind of lost in it, but I wasn't sure how much of that was just my generally loopy uh, state of, uh, you know, sleep deprivation, uh, or if it, you know how much of that was the actual experience that that everybody had having it so uh, it took watching it two or three times before I, I was really certain that you now everybody has that experience watching it and um, and it's wonderful I thought it was uh, extremely funny and um, uh, it's I, I'm not someone though that uh, thinks it's you know just a their favorite movie of the year that year or uh, anything like that. I, How dare you? Though, yeah, but I recognize and I know that uh, somebody like uh, Paul Thomas Anderson, every time I watch his movies, uh, there's another layer to it. There's another uh, something else I'm picking up on I'm appreciating. I know that when I watch his movies, they're only going to improve uh, with me. So, uh, you know, there's a handful of filmmakers like that that I just know he's one of them. And so, yeah, maybe by the time I've seen it as many times as uh, you had the first week it was out, (laughs) then it'll be amazing.
2: Yeah, you know, I agree. I think all of PTA's movies do have that that slow burn, slow burn nature to them, even the ones you immediately like. I mean, I don't know anyone who sits down and watches Boogie Nights the first time and dislikes it. But I do think it is all um, Even his flashier, showier, more instantly gratifying films, I do think even they continually pay off, and that payoff grows over time. But I also think that his more... His films that are a little harder to get your arms around, like The Master, or as is the case for a lot of people, Inherent Vice, or even Phantom Threat, I do think it is it is worth going back to them. I do think that films like The Master and Inherent Vice, they can be just off-putting enough for certain viewers to discourage that rewatch. And I think that's the trick with with especially those two films is they are films that wildly reward rewatching, but do not invite everyone to the party to come back and rewatch. I think that's what a lot of other people, I guess you would call them normal people, uh, have with the film something that, that obviously we don't but where would you say this falls in the PTA filmography for you
1: you know it definitely in my top uh, third probably um, you know Boogie Nights is probably my favorite uh, and I, I like Heartache a whole lot and you know because it's a crime movie and I'm a crime's my my thing so I'm uh, definitely going to rewatch that more often than, than probably Phantom Thread, though I, I like Phantom Thread. There's there's none of his movies that I haven't liked. I've only watched Magnolia once because, my God, uh, yeah, it was good, but it seems like an awful lot of time to put in to, to be rewarded uh, for your time. Uh, but to that point, um, I... Uh, Inherent Vice is one that I've probably seen more than any of his other films at this point just because it is something that I feel I can put in any time for any amount of time and play it from any place in the film and get great stuff out of it. You know, as as often as Doc is kind of in and out of... uh, consciousness or, um, you know, he, he, seems to be waking up someplace new, even if it's in the middle of the scene, uh, all the time. And as a viewer, I, I feel like that's part of the pleasure of it is, uh, uh you just kind of are carried away, um, and, and lost pretty quickly too, uh, from so many different places in the film that that you can you can put it on any place and enjoy it from you know for any amount of time that you've got so you know i'll put it in and watch it for five or ten minutes or uh you know seven minutes or something like that uh a lot because there's so much scene to scene that's immediately gratifying that you don't have to remember oh it connects in this way in that way uh it's just you know Whereas if I put on Phantom Thread or, or uh, yeah, I, I would have to watch that all the way through <laughs> to uh, to really get a lot out of it.
2: Yeah, you know, it's something that Drew McGweeney said in the episode just before yours. You know, he he referred to this movie. It's not something you watch, or it's not it's, it's not a movie. This is a contact high. It's something that you can experience. And you know, for him and myself, I think we both agreed that this is kind of our go-to. This is our go-to late-night movie. You might not. You you might go into it knowing you're not going to finish it. It might just be part of the background hum of your evening or your morning or your afternoon. But there's something there's something comforting about the film, even with its weird, its weird kind of jagged emotional rhythms and the the level of melancholy that's in it. It's and you know, I think that uh, Kim Morgan in this episode too, she was she was alluding to this. Watching this movie, it's kind of like throwing on a Neil Young record, where you get that kind of lazy, almost pleasantly depressed, come down vibe, and you can have this on. It's going to make you laugh a little bit. It's going to make you relax a little bit. But it's like listening to a Neil Young record. You can just have it on in the background. It's gorgeous. And you can tune into its wavelengths when you want, and you can then drop out when you're ready to go. And it's not to make this film sound like a piece of furniture, but it can work like that if you don't want to follow every single scene like a crazy person that would then host a podcast about him.
1: You know what I would compare it to in that way is something like Apocalypse Now, where uh, it's it is another state of mind putting it on. And uh, and it, it it comes in and out uh, now that that's a lot more terrifying than uh, than Inherent Vice is, but I I would put Apocalypse Now on a lot when uh, you know years and years ago when um, I was having trouble sleeping some night and I would just drift in and out of that one and it was terrifying, uh, but it also uh, <laughs> it seemed like. Uh, uh, it seemed like I was on the same wavelength as the film when I was uh, and 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 this one I feel is less Jed, a that's option. that's some
2: that's some Travis Bickle shit right there.
1: <laughs> yeah, be concerned about me, I guess.
2: <laughs> well, you and I are going to have a long serious talk, honey, after the show, and we're going we're going we'll get through it together. Okay. But we're here today to talk specifically about a very, very, very crucial, crucial part of Inherent Vice. And I don't know about you, my favorite part of Inherent Vice, and that's Bigfoot Bjornsson. When you- Absolutely. When you first saw the film, did Brolin hit you? Was it something that was just part of the overall cannaboid fog of the film, or did did he stand out at all? To you.
1: No, he def- he definitely stood out, but not to the degree that he does now. I mean, I, it, frankly, uh, the more I watch the movie, the more blown away I am by Joaquin Phoenix's performance because he's the guy who's got to play against everybody else in this movie, and everybody else in this movie is doing really good stuff. But he's the guy who's got to hold the tone, and, you know, react and uh, to all these other outsized performances and, and things like that. But of all the outsized performances in this film, uh, yeah, Brolin stands out uh, so, so far. And of course, again, as, as a crime fiction fan and, and movie fan, um, he's such a ticklish creation Um, and he is there (laughs) in the book, but, but really, you know, the visuals, uh, uh, Berlin's voice and, and, and all of that are so deliciously, you know, cobbled together from, uh, disparate sources, you know, uh, things that you wouldn't have thrown together before, uh, to, you know, using very familiar, uh ingredients but um but making something that's on the surface seems familiar but but once you bite into it it's like oh my god i was not expecting that texture or that uh the little hint of you know whatever spice you're using it's he's a he's absolutely my favorite character and performance in the movie
2: mine too and Brolin looks like he was grown in a lab specifically to star in this role. He looks like he was made to be Bigfoot Bjornsen with that, that very broad-shouldered, lantern-jawed head uh, that looks like a mix between a ni- a boxer in a 1950s boxing movie and Ralph Meeker. He looks like Ralph Meeker's little brother in this movie. And he That's looks like he was— dis- shit. Exactly, (laughs) and he looks like he was designed to play a hard-ass 1950s cop. Like I cannot imagine anyone else in that role, and as I said in the last episode with Drew, Joaquin Phoenix does amazing, amazing, and I think very, for the most part, unappreciated work as Doc in every single scene of the film, which he's in, every single scene. However... I I can imagine someone else playing Doc and the movie still working. I cannot imagine anyone else, again, maybe with the exception of Ralph Meeker, playing Bigfoot and this character working. There is something about the fearless combination of aggrieved masculinity and total emasculated terror that he mixes together in just the right way. I can't imagine anyone else doing what he's doing, but, and also the level of subtlety and nuance that he's working with while distracting you with all the really big stuff. And you don't even realize some of the smaller things that he's doing, the level of heartbreak he's portraying. And, and so he's, he's so fascinating to me because he's almost the key that unlocks the meaning of the entire film. You know, when he first strolls up to Doc and, you know, he says, what's up, Doc? As Doc's lying there next to a dead man in front of Channel View Estates, we're expecting him to be the heavy, but instead he becomes this deeply heartbroken man who's, who's like a funhouse mirror reflection of Doc and Doc's pain and Doc's longing. And he helps and nudges Doc along from the shadows to achieve both of their ends. And um, it makes me think of how Brolin called Bigfoot a man who is... An era and three quarters behind the times. Like Doc, he's longing for a time that is past as well as a person. But the difference is Bigfoot, he's longing for a time that's been gone for over a decade. He's longing for the 1950s, while Doc is reminiscing about the 60s. And so Bigfoot, one senses, he's like this, he's permanently broken, while with Doc, there's still a chance at something. And so he becomes like the shadow Doc. Uh, but the shadow at the end of the day, kind of at twilight, all stretched out and elongated and outsized, and it's, he's still essentially the sh- the same shape. He's the same thing, but he's like the maximalist endpoint of everything that Doc feels. Which then, if if Doc is really is the avatar of the film, and if Bigfoot is the the maximalist expression of everything that Doc feels, then Bigfoot also. That makes him the outsized projection of everything that Inherent Vice is about, about about longing for things, about missing things. He's just this kind of almost grotesquely comic vision of that. And I—that that is not something I would have expected going into this film and seeing him walk up with his flat top ha- uh, hairdo. You would just assume he's going to be, okay, this is the bad guy.
1: Why does he ever change his haircut, Josh?
2: <laughs> he has a head for a buzz cut.
1: Oh my god. Right? It's I let's just talk about his hair.
2: <laughs> we can make that choice. We can we I mean, this is already a podcast about inherent vice. We can do the like a, the haircuts so of vice bonus episode. We'd have the yeah. we could have a perm episode for Doc. And we have the more kind of the, the the straighter hair. Um Penny has a few different types of hair juice. Shasta obviously got a haircut looking just like she promised she never would. We could do that.
1: Yeah, and- comment on that they they keep the line from the book that her hair's a lot shorter than it used to be her hair's pretty long pretty long in that scene and
2: uh how well i think i think you're showing yourself before? i think you're showing yourself to be quite the square jed
1: yeah you know really? back
2: you know back then that could have been down like you know past her ass probably i mean she's a hippie she's a hippie gal okay That's Could some... be super super long Although yes, I, I do agree. That's always that 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 in, in all honesty, that has always bothered me too. Her hair is pretty long in this movie. We, wow, we, we we're really we, we really are dovetailing into the haircuts of Vice.
1: Yeah, and okay, so you're gonna play a a cop, a hard boiled cop in California in the nineteen, well I guess 1970 by then. Uh, how many actors are gonna grow a mustache for that part? <laughs>
2: <laughs> that is maybe the one thing Bigfoot's missing is a really killer what, mustache.
1: It, I I don't know. I mean I I I don't know. Josh Brolin is is all the perfect choices for this.
2: And we do know he's capable of a killer mustache. We've seen No Country for Old Men.
1: Absolutely. Do you think do you think Anderson cast him because he thought this time I'll get the Oscar? <laughs>
2: With that mustache, I'll get the Oscar.
1: Yeah.
2: All right. Well. On that note, we should probably take a look at this scene uh, before this does this does become the the hair and sartorial choices of Inherent Vice podcast. Let's take a look at this scene. We'll come back and we'll keep talking. To Bigfoot.
3: Congratulations, hippie
0: scum. Welcome to a world of inconvenience. Well, morning, Sam. Like a bad luck planet in today's horoscope, here's the old hippie hating mad dog himself in the flesh Lieutenant Detective Christian F. Bigfoot Bjornsson. SAG member, John Wayne Walk, flat top of Flintstone proportions, and that little evil shit twinkle in his eye that says civil rights violations.
3: What's up, doc? How about your ex-girlfriend? Shasta... Faye... Hepworth. Shasta Faye Hepworth. She is a known intimate of Glenn's employer, Mickey Wolfman. But do you think that Glenn and Shasta were... fucking fucking Is that why you killed him? I just, how does it make you feel? And here you are, still carrying the torch, and there she is, in the company of all those Nazi lowlifes. Doing that, baby. you give me a heart on. Tough little wop monkey, as my friend Fatso Judson always says. So, while suspect, that's you, who's having a lunch midday nap, so necessary to the hippie lifestyle. Some sort of incident occurs in the vicinity of Channel View Estates. Firearms are discharged. When the dust settles, we find one Glenn Sharlock deceased. But more compellingly for LAPD is the man Sherlock was supposed to be guarding. Michael Z. Wolfman has vanished. Giving local law enforcement less than 24 hours before the feds call it a kidnapping and come in to fuck everything up. So perhaps, Mortello, you can help forestall this by providing the names of the other members of your cult. 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 No one would ever be stupid enough to attempt this alone, which suggests some kind of Mansonoid conspiracy. Wouldn't you agree? No. Look, I've been referred to more than one time by the LA Times as a Renaissance detective, okay? Which means I am many things. One thing I am not is stupid, so purely out of noblesse oblige, I extend this assumption to cover you as well. What the fuck? That
2: <laughs> everything he does, you know, there's there's um there's a great story about the film Cockfighter that starred Warren Oates and Harry Dean Stanton. And there was a moment in during the filming of that. It's a Monty Hellman film. There was a moment in the filming where Harry Dean was just not finding his character. He was not comfortable with his character And he took whatever you do is right. He took Warren Oates aside and he told him, you know, I just, I'm lost here. I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know what I'm saying. And, you know, Warren Oates, who's just, you know, the most perfect human being who ever lived, as uh, uh, Richard Linklater once said, you know, there once was a God who roamed the earth and his name was Warren Oates. Warren looks at Harry and he says, Harry Dean, whatever you do is right. That's. To me, that had to be the edict on the set refer- When, whenever Josh Brolin came to the set. Whatever he does in this film feels right. There is not a false move. There is not a wrong note. And in this opening sequence, seeing him sit at his desk, the level of frustration that he shows as he... Sh- <laughs> When I have been, ref- I am someone who has been referred to, and he's making, he's pointing to the sky, more than one time by the L.A. Times as a Renaissance detective. Okay, that means I am many things. the The, the choices that he makes are so so perfect. I, I could watch in a separate film. I could watch the the subplot film where it's just Bigfoot running around L.A. depressed all the time. And I would be totally happy with that. If that's all Inherit Vice was, was just a Bigfoot spin off movie, I could watch that and be happy.
1: I would like to see him and Vincent and Delicato as like, you know, traffic cops sitting in their speed trap, practicing obscene gestures. Just like, <laughs> no, you gotta, you gotta really, you know, pop it out of your mouth or you gotta- oh,
2: Jesus Christ. Uh,
1: you know, I think that's, I think that's where he picked it up, frankly. But, my, he's so good.
2: I think that that would be I would like to
1: see behind-the-scenes stuff of him just practicing, you know, uh, screwing with his hands.
2: (laughs) I think that would be a far more lascivious vision than Inherent Vice. That would have to be like one of those late-night USA TV shows from the late 90s. You know, something like Vice Nights. Or something like that, <laughs> but spelled K-N-I-G-H-T-S. Awesome.
1: No, I Bigfoot. mean, this could have been an episode of Adam-12, I think. Just uh, <laughs> sitting around, just just bullshitting, sitting there making obscene gestures.
2: Well, Bigfoot is an extra on Adam-12, so he would be he's perfect for that. Yeah, he's got a SAG card and everything. Yeah. But um, <laughs> where to start with Bigfoot? He is some he is such an unavoidable part of this film. As I said, no one has come on this show thus far and not brought him up, even though he is not a part of their scene. Everyone has to say, I look, I am so sorry. I gotta talk about Bigfoot, with the exception of the wonderful Fran Hoffner, who Bigfoot I think is the her least favorite part of the film. But even she had wow. to bring him up. He he's like this gravity well that just pulls you in. And Brolin's performance is so stunning. And it's so hypnotic that you can't not talk about him, even when he has nothing to do with the scene at hand. And I think a lot about how he came to be, because he was not meant to be this very, you know, if if you've if you've read the book, and I think you have, uh, I, I saw I you tweet, I saw you tweeting about it in the book he's a much more kind of grumbly, he's kind of like your cranky stepdad. He doesn't really want, he doesn't seem as connected to Doc or as interested in being connected to Doc as he is in the film. And he's far more human in the film. But originally that was not the case. And I think that the humanity of Bigfoot is something that was discovered along the way. And it sprang from... What was, by all accounts, a very chaotic, very wild shoot. And in a 2013 interview, a year before the film had come out, but it was already done filming, Brolin said uh, of the shooting, Paul Thomas Anderson, having just worked with him, it's like, let's go this way, or let's whisper the lines, or let's actually take out all the lines and do the scene as charades just once. Or, you know, like, hold him, put him on your shoulders, and we'll do the whole scene with him sitting on your shoulders. He's all over the place. It's just absolute fucking chaos every day, all day, which is great because you feel like you've done something, but, you know, we'll we'll, we'll see how it turns out. And that kind of wild improvisation and Rubik's Cubing of character, it led to a much different Bigfoot than originally scripted because... In another interview, and I'm just going to start fastballing Brolin quotes at you now, I guess, but in a 2014 interview with IndieWire, uh, Brolin made clear that Anderson had originally conceived of Bigfoot as being a far more one-note foil to Doc, but that Anderson, in speaking with Brolin, the two of them, they began to read more into this broken detective's contradictions and his emotional insecurities and began to find a much deeper set of layers to the character. And Brolin even went so far as to characterize him. And he's a he's a man who's more in the midst of a tantrum than at the pinnacle of his abilities. He's a guy who's really focused on trying to have an impact as opposed to actually having an impact. And as he said, in this absurd world, it's fun to find the music in that. And selfishly, I thought if I could humanize this character, then that'd be a great that'd be a great challenge. And that to me. Is that's well. First off, that's you know no no slur against the book because you know Thomas Pynchon's not exactly a slouch. This is one of the reasons why I love the film so much more than the book is that there is a weird and broken humanity to the film that I don't think is in the book, especially when it comes to the character of Bigfoot. And when you finish the film, sometimes you have to finish it more than once. But when you finish the film. When you come back to an early scene like this what's what's really fascinating is how the first time you watch it you're thinking okay this is the bad guy this is the heavy and then the second time or the third time or the fourth time or however many times it might take you if you're willing to keep going back you begin to go to realize oh no this this guy's miserable this is like this is the person probably most in need of saving in this film and all of this teasing that he's doing to doc this is all coming from like a really real and broken place
1: yeah and he's also, uh, you know, it takes you that long to, to put together, you know, multiple viewings. Sometimes, uh, maybe just maybe you get it at the end of your first viewing. But it took me a while to realize. Oh no, he's he's the he's he's playing Doc. He's orchestrating this. This is, um, you know, Doc's his his tool uh, for justice in this. And uh, so you know you. The first time you see it, uh, maybe you you understand there's a there's a twinkle in his eye when he's accusing Doc of you know being part of a Mansonoid conspiracy here. Uh, you, you don't maybe you don't take it seriously, but but you don't realize. Generally, uh, it took me a, a little while to realize. No, he's really he's just he. This is their they reparte and but he's playing it differently than he usually does, and he's sending Doc this way. He's trying to get him riled up for a reason. And, uh, uh, yeah, he's a, it's a very complex uh, decision-making on how to play that, and uh, hats off to everybody involved for pulling that off. I think it's, it's amazing.
2: And much... Like you said, you know, this is a movie that you can throw on any time. Uh, isn't that one of the reasons why in that this film works on so many different levels? If you want to just watch this as a stoner comedy or a goofball comedy, I think you can for a lot of it. I mean, there might um, the incredibly heavy sex scene might be a little difficult, but... <laughs> For there's, I mean, that's not exactly, I mean, but even then there's jokes in that scene too, boy, guys, sure love hearing this. Um, that said you can, you can watch this film. And if you just want the Dick and fart jokes and the Tom and Jerry stuff between Bigfoot and doc, it's all there. And you can enjoy it on that level. If you want to watch it as a breakup movie, because someone's just broken your heart and you're miserable and you want to luxu- you want to do that thing where you you do nothing but luxuriate in depressing art and depressing films and depressing music, boy, this is the perfect film for that because it's, it's sprinkled just enough jokes to maybe not make you want to throw yourself into traffic, but it's sad enough to let you really 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 sink into your misery. Or if you're you know if you're just a noir guy, if you're a detective movie guy, if you're a crime movie guy, or if you're a you're a loser, you want to you're a your favorite movie is where the loser just does one good thing. This is the perfect movie for you. And that's, I think you can see that in this scene right here. You can view this sequence as, well, this is just a stereotypical straight cop. This is a uh, straight world asshole, hates hates long hair and hippies cop, and he's just giving Doc shit. And that's it. That's the scenes, Tom and Jerry. But as you said, It Brolin is sketching it on so many different levels where he's putting stuff in so that it works on a plot level, whereas you said he's already beginning to push Doc towards elements of the Golden Fang that hurt him, specifically Adrian Prussia and Puck Beaverton, who were contracted by the LAPD to kill his partner. And he's pushing them in that direction. But there's also... There's also the frustration of the loser in Bigfoot, the hypocrite in Bigfoot, the guy who is not nearly as respected as you might think he is, terrified that the FBI is going to come in and fuck his world up. You know, I always think of, one of the things I always think of when I think of Bigfoot, and it's one of the funnier moments that doesn't get enough attention because it comes right after Moto Panakeku, is I, I love Doc and Bigfoot sitting in a pancake joint and Doc having to put his face down to keep from laughing as Bigfoot just slowly, uh, mournfully intones, you probably imagine that I have a lot of status up in robbery homicide. I mean, who could blame you for thinking that? The reality, however, no CLO drive for Bigfoot. No TV, movie rights, or book deals for Bigfoot. I mean, even the extra work is drying up. God help us all, dentists on trampolines. This is a this is a guy who the world is passing him by, and opportunity is passing him by to the point where he's longingly wishing for another uh, another Cielo Drive massacre that he can put his name upon. Right, because and, that's
1: the thing with LA noir movies is the uh, the end of the era defining murders of usually actresses you know whether it's the black dahlia in 1947 sharon tate then in 69 and then with nicole brown simpson and 90 you know every 20 25 years there's one of these big era defining murders and yeah he
2: didn't catch it (laughs) didn't catch it well that's kind of the novel thing about bigfoot's character one of the novel things about bigfoot's character to me is that and i don't know if this has ever been tried before and i you know i think the only way you could do it would have to be with a supporting character because if you did it with your main character i mean jesus where's the movie bigfoot is a detective who has no case like bigfoot is a he's he has you know if you're if you're into that kind of story where that very kind of the 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 Shane Black, the cop in the Shane Black mode, a loser detective who's watched the world slip through his fingers and is desperately angling to just be part of one fucking meaningful act, to do one good thing. What's what's kind of both funny but also tragic about this character is he doesn't have that. He does not have the case that's going to redeem him. And I think it's a really interesting and as I said, kind of tragic comic way to portray this character. He's a detective without a case uh, that that he can angle for his own redemption. there's there's nothing to do. There's nothing for him to do. And even to the point that when there is when there is something that he can use to try to redeem himself, and that's to a, be a part of rescuing Koi Harlingen from Vigilant California, AKA the Golden Fang. And when it comes especially to the kind of righteous vengeance of killing the two men who killed his partner and possibly his lover or unrequited love, there's a hypocrisy in him and a smallness in him he can't do either of those things. He has to literally outsource both to Doc. Doc has to be the hero. Doc has to be the one that saves Koi Harlingen, and Doc has to be the one that kills Adrian and Puck. Bigfoot might push him in that direction. He might push him to Adrian Prussia. He might fill Doc's trunk full of heroin that will, he can use to buy Koi Harlingen out of the fang. But I think part of the antipathy or the brotherly hatred between these two men comes from the fact that Bigfoot understands his place in the story and he realizes he knows he's not the hero and that he can't be the hero. Doc is the hero. And I think some of his revulsion for hippiedom comes not just because the hippies represent in that very kind of Rick dalton Once Upon a Time in Hollywood way, hippies represent the change that he can't fight, but it's also because he recognizes the hero of this story is not him, it's a hippie. Yeah, I,
1: I, when I think about Bigfoot in this, I think this is almost the, the backstory to, to his movie, you know, uh, the next movie starring Bigfoot, he's flamed out of the force and he's now, uh, you know, he's now a PI, (laughs) you know, he's, uh, he's had it with, uh, you know, he's either disgraced or quit in impotent rage or something. Um, but, you know, I, I think as much as he baits Doc, I, I think at least in his mind, uh, I think he thinks of them as kind of partners, kind of buddies on this case. Uh, you know, he's obviously he's not telling Doc what's going on uh he's needing doc to you know be manipulated into doing doing things but I, I I don't know you talk about Shane black I think he feels like he's part of the buddy cop uh, caper going on here um it, that's how I feel anyway he, he seems to to you know be participating uh, at least in his mind as as much as he can, um, and Doc's a little slow on the uptake sometimes,
2: <laughs> well, sure. I mean, I do think that there there is an element of that because if you recall in the second to last scene of the film, uh, which which is between Doc and Bigfoot, it's the moment where Bigfoot kicks the door down to Doc's place and eats the weed. yeah, but there's that there's that moment where. <laughs> he's almost like he, he he's a little heartbroken that doc doesn't see it the same way that, 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 that body cop dynamic, you know, when he comes in and he's, he's, he's unshaven and his eyes are red and you can, he's clearly been crying. Um, but God, I, I love the, I, I love how ridiculous this character is, but he, he kicks the door down. He comes in unshaven crying and you know, what's he mutter, you know, after a, a long and busy day of civil rights violations, I found myself in the neighborhood and compelled to drop in just to check in and see the current state of affairs. And he's like, seeing as how you... And he's so passive aggressive, seeing as how your effort to keep lines of communication have been limited, to say the least. He's he's so angry that Doc has... He's literally saying, you didn't call me back, dude. Like, we went through some shit. We went through hell together. We fought the fang together, right? You didn't. You, you weren't just going to call me back and let me know how it turned out? Which I think... Yeah. I, highlights what exactly what you're saying, which is he's like, hey, aren't we like Batman and Robin here? Like, what happened?
1: Yeah, so that's, yeah, I think that's the place. He's at the brink of quitting the force, I think, of being disgusted with it or unable to, you know, swallow any more shit or something. Uh, And I think he feels like he's on... He's closer to Doc's wavelength than uh, than Doc thinks he is, anyway. Um, You know, one of the one of the similarities between, say, a druggy movie or story and a hardboiled detective story is the they're both about finding the interconnectedness of everything. But they're very different takes on it. You know, usually the the druggy story, at least the euphoric part of it, is, oh, my God, everything's cl- connected, and that's kind of delightful. And then it, it can turn into paranoia. And, oh, my God, everything's connected. And, you know, <laughs> who's pulling my strings? And, and Doc goes through all of that. But the, the hard-boiled detective, and especially the cop hard-boiled detective, sees the machinery... Of society and understands his place in it in keeping it moving and, and you know it, the way it chews people up and things like that but but you know so, sort of an outsider perspective on uh, the interconnectedness of everything and then the, the PI stories um, you know they're, they're, they're often these burnt out cops who who got sick of seeing the interconnectedness of everything and how indifferent uh, the power structure is to the little guy or you know whatever, and they got burnt out on that and they they quit so that they can only do the work that they want to do and they usually you know are so focused on one little area of something so they don't have to look at the big picture anymore. But then the the story is usually you know they get this case where. Builds out and it goes all the way to the top again. <laughs> um, so that's why I feel like Bigfoot. This is like the backstory to Bigfoot PI. Um, <laughs> you know, the, the next the next movie. This is, you know, he, he got he, he got comeuppance for uh, Indelicato, and uh, and now he can be now he doesn't have to be part of the force anymore. And I think, uh, yeah, I think when he munches down all Doc's weed and things like that, I think he's he's uh, part of that anyway, I think, is him saying, okay, I'm ready to, to say fuck it with the rules. Because, I mean, yeah, he's, he's a man out of time for sure. Uh, one thing I think is interesting about this movie is all the – all the stuff that is anti-bigfoot, you know, is anti this uh, this very square 1950s uh, thing. All the all the counterculture stuff um, that he's so bent on, uh, you know, screwing down the lid on and, and keeping it uh, uh, keeping it repressed is coming out, and it's coming out of prison culture. You know, in the book, uh, Jade and Bambi. You know, uh, Jade. There's a whole thing about you know how she learned to eat, eat pussy in 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 prison and found she really liked it or whatever. And and now she works at Chick Planet and uh, does it for a living. You know, this was not something really she did really quickly on the outside.
2: Really quickly. I just want to jump in. I want you to hang that. Hold on to that thought. I just want to say, for anyone that thinks that Thomas Pynchon is boring. Uh, hyper-intellectual stuff that you are forced to read in college, take note of what Jed is saying here. <laughs> take note of what Jed is saying. It's not all rockets shooting across the sky and endless footnotes. There's some There's some fun, wild stuff in there. All right, go ahead.
1: Well, there, okay, so there's, you know, there's the, you know, to Bigfoot's point of view anyway, there's, you know, there's deviant sexual practice, there's drug culture, there is you know, the Aryan Brotherhood, there is black militancy uh, and, you know, um, uh, anti-government cooperation between these very unlikely uh, sources. But all this stuff that is out on the street and becoming more and more mainstream, it's in the book and in the movie, it's pretty much all credited to time these people have spent in prison
3: and this is where they
1: learned it and this is where it's really growing and who put them in prison it's bigfoot it's these you know uh he sees this stuff they they stamp down on it and then all the people that are stamped down on hang out together in prison and and they get better at what they do and now bigfoot's in a place where hey this stuff isn't uh you know it's now becoming mainstream and all my stamping down has uh, has only made it flourish more, and uh, so yeah, I think Bigfoot's time in the police department is is limited. I think well, there's another Bigfoot story, and it's a PI story.
2: <laughs> well, by doing that, as you said, you know he only concretizes his place as as a yet another outsider, because he's sending everyone to prison, or you know I love that it's such a commonplace happenstance uh, and environment in the book that everyone just calls it the place. You learn that in the place. Yeah. I learned it in the place. Uh, But in doing so he's uniting all of these characters in that way, because when they are, when they do meet, you know, someone will, someone will notice the way, like, I think in the book, Jade notices the way doc knocks a cigarette out of his pack. And, you know, she says something to the fact that he does that prison style or joint style or, you know, and then someone else goes, you learn that in the place um but by doing all of that he's uniting all of these people into yet another group that he is not a part of he is once he is literally, he is creating in a way he is creating his own group to exclude him and those are those are the type of people that he sends to the place and that includes people like Doc and people like Jade and people like Coy Harlingen and, and people like Adrian Prussia and Puck Beaverton not that he'd really want to hang out with them anyway but he there's this entire subculture that is uniting against him because of his actions. And while I would love, I would say, I would love to see a post-LAPD Bigfoot movie, In this would be a perfect one for, his, for a mustache, I would love to see the 8 million ways to die version of Bigfoot's story where he breaks out of the LAPD and goes on a mystery and hangs out with Rosanna Arquette, but... I would, the the one thing I would disagree with you about there is I don't know that Bigfoot will ever have the strength to leave the LAPD. I think part of his tragedy is that I don't know that he is capable of enacting change. I, again, I would love to see that, that 8 million ways to die version of Bigfoot. But I think one of the things that hurts my heart for him is he's, he, I I I feel like he might be done in terms of proactivity in his life. You know, I, I keep thinking of, and we're, we're. As with every single episode, we are so far afield of our scene, but uh, there's that great that great scene with uh, he and his wife Chastity Bjornson, when he's on the phone with with Doc, and she's like, "Oh, Doc, Sp- Doc Sportello, the Doc Sportello, Mister Moral Fucking Terpitude himself. You know, have you any idea what the therapist bills around here, uh, with a deductible? With a deductible that would choke a fucking horse." Uh, you know I fail she starts just laying into, to Bigfoot, you know I fail to understand your spineless response to that dirty hippie piece of shit. Would you get the fuck up? Get the fuck up, Christian Christian, get the fuck up. <laughs> now Christian, please would you stop acting like a beaten dog? I ask you for one fucking day a week and he just trails behind her slope shouldered, his head is down. And I think again that's part of the tragedy of Bigfoot is he is he's the guy who's part of an organization. That he knows murdered his partner, and he can't even muster the the level of vengeance and rage that you know. There's a there's a moment in the book where even where Doc even wonders when he finds out that Vincent Delicato was killed, and that um, all signs point to the LAPD working with Golden Fang hitters Adrian Prussia and Puck Beaverden to take Vincent Delicato out there's a moment where Doc even wonders, you know, why I can't exactly, it it, it sounds like something out of a Charles Bronson movie where, you know, Doc wonders why Bigfoot didn't just show up the next day with like, you know, shotgun shells crisscrossed around his chest and like, you know, double fisting guns and just destroying everything in his path. And I think it's because there's something, I think there's something fundamentally broken in Bigfoot and, I think it comes from, you know, he's not, he's not a stupid man. And I think, I think he's aware of his hypocrisy. He's aware that he is in an arm. He works for the arm of a much greater and more insidious force. You know, the LAPD is shown to be at least in the Venn diagram overlap of the golden thing. And to know that he's part of the same organization that not only sanctioned a hit on his partner, or at the very least, willingly turned a blind, blue-lined eye to it. But that he, he he's, he's aware he's enmeshed and morally compromised, uh, just as much as everyone else in the LAPD. And I think he's aware that he's morally compromised in a way that Doc would never allow himself to be. And so while I do agree with you, I do think that there is an element of his mind where he he wants to believe he's part of the team, the buddy cop team between he, and, between he and Doc. I don't know if I could ever see him get out. I would want him to get out, but I, I get the feeling he's he's probably a lifer that's building his way to a gold watch and a pension.
1: He may not be able to free himself, but he could get ejected. He could get, you know, now that he's accomplished paying them back, you know, getting Adrian pressure now that he's now that he's done that. He may be completely out of steam to do his job anymore he may he may get shit canned or you know, chastity may leave him <laughs> or, you know something like that something like that might happen that could just yeah
2: well you know I, th- I think
1: ways to die you know he may just hit rock bottom and <laughs> have no other options
2: He'd have to have a snow cone face off with Andy Garcia
1: that's right
2: for it's those that's of you awesome awesome ponytail for those of you don't know anyone who has the means i think it's on amazon prime right now kino lorber has a great blu-ray check out Hal ashby's final film eight million ways to die it's not exactly a masterpiece but it does feature an alcoholic cop played by jeff bridges who faces off against a drug kingpin played by andy garcia and ashby basically just let them riff and improv for most of the film and there's literally literally a scene where our hero and our villain face off in a parking lot where they're fighting for the soul of Rosanna Arquette and they do it while passively aggressively munching on pink ice cream cones the whole time. It's, it's amazing. You haven't seen anything like it. And that would actually be quite in keeping with Bigfoot's very aggressive treatment of frozen snack treats. I I think we, we, we might actually be on to something here, Chad. We, we yep. might be on to something here. But the other fun thing you can do, I guess, with Bigfoot is try to guess all the other cop movies that might presage his fate. Speaking of him getting a gold watch and a pension, I could also see Bigfoot eventually growing up to become Dennis Hopper in Speed. Dennis Hopper, absolutely. I, I could see him blowing up buses uh, and getting really, really pissed at the Wildcat behind the wheel in the hot shot it's constantly, constantly ruining all his nefarious plans just to get away with a little Pop bit of
3: quiz, cash. hot shot. You. Pop quiz, hot shot. There's a bomb on a bus. <laughs> What's oh. up, Doc?
2: Oh. Oh. <laughs> oh, my God. We have fun. Back to Bigfoot's relationship with Doc. Something that I do think is really interesting, something that you said is that you feel that Bigfoot might be far more on Doc's wavelength than Doc or anyone else can imagine. I would like to tweak that a little bit because I think at least my takeaway on this and this and what's so great about this film is that I don't know that there is a concrete reading of this film. I know that I'm operating from what I believe it to be, but I also think it could be several other things either individually or all at once. But How I read what you, you know, when you said, you know, you think that that he might be more on Doc's wavelength than anyone can imagine. I don't know that that's true, but I think Bigfoot thinks that that's true. And that's how I view his character. And there, that's how I think that's why it's one of the reasons why he has to eat that tray full of pot at the end of the film, which was originally scripted just to be that he steals Doc's joint, tokes flicks it at Doc and then walks back out the door but Brolin in a incredibly brilliant improv decided that he needed to to match the outsized mood of the film and just eat the entire goddamn tray of pot but he does that in that scene because you know you get the sense he's trying to almost like absorb Doc's essence if he could just if he could ingest all this weed not just by smoking it just eating it wholesale he could it would bring out that thing in him that he feels is like Doc, but I don't think truly is. I think it for him, it's more there there was something else that, that Brolin said about Bigfoot and especially about Bigfoot's relationship to Hollywood and always trying to be, you know, in in, in in movies and TV shows and get get the kind of case that would give him his own film. Is uh Brolin said, back then and now. A lot of cops are on sets when they're not working. They're not necessarily actors, but they're definitely working on sets because that's where there's money. The fact that Bigfoot wasn't a prime investigator during the Manson murders and all that, he's not getting his. And look at him. The Whigs, hating hippies while playing a hippie, in reference to the states States commercial. It reminds me of doing theater in New York. Where people would all talk about how awful Hollywood is. And then two weeks later, I'd see them in a chicken commercial. What happened to that judgment, that level of integrity? I see Bigfoot the same way. He'll do anything for fame, for notice, for some kind of validity, and yet he's going about it the wrong way. And for me, I think that links back, as we said, you know, that, for lack of a better term, that Shane Black Cop who's desperate for some kind of feeling of validity and redemption and you know usually in those kind of stories they get the case that allows them to save themselves and there's for me there's an impotence to bigfoot there is no case by which he is going to be able to leverage his redemption and so he's stymied and he's and he's he's blocked and i think in his mind his next step to to accomplishing what he then wants to accomplish that kind of redemption is he again he looks at someone like doc who, on one level, he loathes because he loathes him as a as a hippie, but also goes well. Doc Doc is a hero. Doc gets to be a hero, and so you know, even though I hate this, maybe I need to sell out a little, like the actors that Brolin saw hating Hollywood, but then would be in a chicken commercial two weeks later, and as Roland Brolin said, you know, would do anything for that notice, for that fame, for that kind of validity, and for me, I think that that's why bigfoot wants to believe there is far more of a of a similarity between the two men in terms of their personalities because he i think in his mind he's like if if i can just be doc then i get to be the hero if i can be like doc if i can move the way that doc moves on the street i can be like doc and again i think the tragedy with him is that he finds that he can't he's he's always going to be the shadow player
1: i think what he sees is the main difference between himself and doc i think he th- thinks of doc as kind of taking the easy way you know i think i think what he's demonstrating or at least what he's letting on to even if he's not uh, intending to in that in that final scene where he's uh, smoking or eating the dope is like look i can do this too it's not hard to do this <laughs> you, know? you you do this all the time it's not hard. Look, I can eat the whole thing. Uh, I could do that if I, you know, if I chose to. I could, you know, but, um, yeah, I think he envies, envies Doc's ability to take it easy. Or, you know, I think that's, in his mind, the only difference. You know, I could take a nap that's so essential to the hippie lifestyle. Uh, anybody <laughs> could take a nap. You know, but, I mean, clearly... Clearly, not anybody could could take a nap. He's incapable of doing it, but I think he thinks he could.
2: I could do this. Yours and don't was, you don't know, you love those easy stuff. those wonderfully passive aggressive barbs like that? It's like he can't help himself when he has to say that. Or, you know, taking a nap so necessary to the hippie lifestyle. He just can't help himself. There is some part of him that is so offended by the way Doc has chosen to comport himself. Like it, I love it. I, I and I, I love that aggression. And they are like brothers. You know, uh, Drew McQueenie compared them. They're they're like they're like fighting brothers. And as I don't know if you have any siblings, but I do know that you're the father of two boys. And mm-hmm. this might be something you know a thing or two about that kind of that loving aggression that can develop like friction between yeah. between two brothers, where finally it has like it it comes out at first as these little barbs before. You know, exploding in slow motion where one of them is throwing the other against their car while the partner looks on outside of Sloan Wolfman's house.
1: Yeah. Can you explain that scene to I mean, I know this is that's not my scene, but I still <laughs> I, I mean, it's a wonderful scene. It gets me smiling and, and all that. But what the hell does that come from?
2: I, I, I actually I. I am glad you asked because I, I <laughs> shockingly shockingly I have an opinion on this uh, on on something that that happens in inherent vice I do
1: Are you going to share it now or Allo- No no
2: All- allow me allow me okay. to elucidate All- allow me to to lay upon this conversational table these jewels that I have um what what I think is going on there and you know breaks my heart because, you know, Jed, I put this in my piece, my essay on the film for Bright Wall, Dark Room, which apparently you didn't memorize every word. But I
1: didn't memorize it. I got lost, frankly. I mean, it's a beautiful <laughs> way to get lost. I was like, oh, my God.
2: Just oh, like watching the movie. <laughs> you son of a bitch. Um, what is going on in that sequence is something I actually did want to talk about with you because we are, we are introducing Bigfoot proper in this scene. And it's something that I did want to get to, which is, you know, you, you talk about, we're using a lot of hippie speak, like vibes and wavelength. But you you were saying that you feel like Bigfoot is very much closer to Doc's wavelength than anyone thinks. I don't think that that's the case in terms of, let's say, hippiedom or even their ability to make, again, like yeah, we're, we're going to slip into one heat minute speech here, make moves on the street. But where I do think they are similar is to swing back to the very beginning of this conversation today, you know, I was talking about how I feel Bigfoot unlocks the meaning of this film for me and that I do think that he is the shadow Doc. He is a grotesquely outsized version of everything that Doc and everyone else is experiencing in this film. Everyone in this film, and I've 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 beat this drum basically every episode thus far. Everyone in this film is longing for someone or something. Something has become lost. For Tariq Khalil, it's an entire neighborhood and a street gang. For Hope Harlingen, it's a husband that she just can't believe is dead. For Doc, it's obviously it's Shasta Faye Hepworth, as well as the, the peace or the potential for peace and promise of that of the 1960s. And for everyone, you know... Everyone in the character, everyone in the film, excuse me, every character in the film has something that they're missing and that they're longing for. And Bigfoot is no different, except Bigfoot is almost a a caricature. He's a, he's almost a parody of that in that he is so desperately longing for the 1950s and so desperately longing for Vincent Delicato. These are two things that are never going to come back. Everyone else in the film, the thing they're longing for, most of them, they might, might get lucky and get their thing to come back bigfoot will not bigfoot is permanently broken and i do think that they are brothers and they are inextricably linked linked in a way and i think that they are so linked that they that, that bigfoot is so the shadow version of doc that they share i guess in the movies lingo would be dopers esp they are I think they're they're kind of they're humming on a molecular level. I think their atoms vibrate at just about the same speed, no matter how different their personalities may be. I think the point of these two characters are that they are the same character. They are inversion or rather inversions of each other. And that's a very, 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 very long-winded wind-up to me saying, I think there are little breadcrumbs spread throughout the film that point to that. And one of them is the scene outside of Mickey and Sloane Wolfman's house where, you know, if you remember, Doc is looking at all the ties that have painted versions of all of Mickey Wolfman's sexual conquests on them. And as he's flipping through, there's this moment where he just stops and he shakes and he says, Bigfoot. And he looks around and then when he walks outside, Bigfoot was sitting there waiting for him. And I don't think it's one of those things where maybe Bigfoot's real or maybe he's not real the way sort of Leage is maybe real or maybe not real. I just think it was a really goofy, funny, hazy, lazy stoner's way of portraying the fact that these two men can sense each other mm-hmm. and that they, they, that they are literally on the same wavelength and that Bigfoot can roll up with... A someone else, I don't think it's a new partner, but he can roll up in his uh, Pontiac GTO convertible and Doc can literally smell it. Doc knows that he's there. Just the way that Bigfoot knows that Doc is at Adrian Prush's at the end of the film. They are able to, I think they're just able to sniff each other out because they are... And boy, if you really want to get one heat minute about it, and you are one heat minute alum, they are the only two men alike in a way. They've they've got that Vincent Hanna Neil McCulley thing going on, where I think that they understand for there to be balance in this story that they are on, they might be on opposite ends of the hippie versus cop spectrum, but that they, as I said earlier. Bigfoot is a reflection of Doc. It might be a funhouse reflection, but he's a reflection nonetheless. And because of that, I think that in, in that specific sequence, and Jesus, I'm, I've basically gone on for two hours now just talking about this one scene, it feels like, uh, that's that's what's going on. I think that, that it's Doper's ESP, and Doc is simply, he's capable of sensing when Bigfoot is around. Wow.
1: That's beautiful, man. <laughs> And now in my when I my, think about a banana, a
2: chocolate nightmare. covered
1: banana, something comes out of me.
2: <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. And that sounded really creepy. Please don't do that again. Not on this show. Please. But as we as we start to wind this down, I do want to swing back to the scene proper because I actually have a question for you. What? Uh and that is when you're watching this, do you think that this early in the film, with Bigfoot bracing Doc about what the hell went down at Channel View, do you think that Bigfoot is already putting things into place for Doc to do what he does at the end of the film and avenge, push Doc to avenge uh, Vincent and Delicato, or do you think at this point he is just trying to feel out what the hell happened and maybe maybe this this little guy this this mangy little detective had actually had a nefarious hand in it?
1: No, I. I very much think he is he is already like this is his opportunity. He sees his opportunity. He sees Doc as his tool to use to achieve his ends and he's trying. I don't think he knows exactly where it's going to go. I do think the one thing that is really genuine in that scene for him is his fear that the FBI is gonna mess it up. And so he's really pushing Doc, you know, obviously Sanj comes in and you know they joke around about, I'm gonna kick him, you're gonna kick him, that's assault, <laughs> you know. And they, I don't think he thinks Doc's, you know, part of a Mansonoid cult, uh, but he's he's going through their song and dance that they do uh, because he needs to motivate Doc to get on this before the FBI messes everything up for him, and uh, yeah, I just I think he sees his shot and he's trying to take it. Um, please don't ex- ask me to explain uh, how he's going to. I've already forgotten the plot
2: <laughs>
3: <laughs>
1: again, but uh, but well, I think no, that. If... that that sense now that this is uh, this is him seizing an opportunity.
2: Yeah, but, you mean, you know, he does it by if you every time after this that they start to meet, he's always pushing facts at Doc that Doc can't understand why he's doing that. And that's something else that makes the film play different on re, upon rewatching is the first time you watch this Doc, uh, Bigfoot seems rather incompetent. He's always suggesting he's always suggesting things. And and Doc's like, what, what, Adrian pressure. What the fuck are you? What what does that have to do with anything? You know, when you know, when they meet at the pancake house and like Bigfoot's, you know, like he's pushing Puck and he's pushing Adrian at at Doc and Doc's like looking at him like like because Bigfoot's like, you know, what do you think? What do you think? He's he's like so obviously like even he even forces Doc to pick a very specific witness card to read. Uh, he, he's so pushing him towards this one, this one outcome. And the first time you watch that, you assume that Bigfoot's just incompetent. But then, the second or third or fourth time, or however many times it might take you, you start to go. You start to realize he's he's laying as many breadcrumbs as possible to guide, to guide Doc to the location of the two men that killed his partner.
1: I think he. Yeah, I think part of it is is a little bit of luck for him. He's. He caught the Glenn Sharlock murder and he sees it as oh, this is Puck Beaverton, this is Adrian Prussia and this is my little buddy right in the middle of it and I can <laughs> here's my opportunity to send him uh, to send him to burn it all down. Or as Doc says to you know, send a white Tariq guy in. Tariq Khalil. In. Yeah. Uh, <laughs>
2: yeah, which is exactly and, what happens. You know,
1: pretty much. That's uh, and and that's what happens. That's uh, that's the role of a detective in in this kind of affair. Is most. I wrote I wrote a couple private eye novels under a different name. They were a long time ago. They're out of print. No one's ever going to read them. Which is good. They're not very good. But one thing I. I my detective acknowledged in them is that look, nobody hires me you hardly anyone ever hires me to find out something they don't know. They hire me to do things they don't feel capable of doing themselves, you know, for emotional reasons or Hmm. or, or they're in denial. They know the answer but they're in denial. They want and that's that's just a thing that happens in these movies and these stories all the time. The detective, yeah, they have to figure something out, but it's not usually something the person who hired them didn't already know. It's they're hired to, you know, let the, the, this guy stick his head out and, and get, get it cracked or, you know, to, uh, finally, finally say, yeah, my, my daughter did, she's not missing. She, hates my guts and doesn't want anything to do with me. And that's why, you know, I haven't heard from her in all this time. And, you know, other, things like that, people usually already know what the truth is uh, when they hire them. And yeah. um, I forget where this started from.
2: <laughs> well, that's a, that's, that's a perfect, that's a perfect way to end a sentence when talking about Inherit Vice. On that note, I have to say thank you so much, Jed, for coming on and for talking about this amazing character with me. I think that this might be, might be, might be, shockingly, the most cohesive episode of Increment Vice thus far, where we more or less, we didn't quite stay on scene, but we actually stayed on topic. I think 98, 99% of this, this call, we actually talked about the central subject of this scene. So we're well, we, welcome. We give each other give I'm gonna give, I'm gonna send you a gold watch. <laughs> Attached to a bus. <laughs> what do you do, Jed? What do you do? <laughs> but again, thank you for coming on today. This has been a blast. I've really been looking forward to talking to you, especially about this movie. And yeah,
1: thanks for having me, man.
2: And where can people find your stuff?
1: Uh, they can uh yeah. Uh I got a Twitter handle that uh I tell people what I'm doing or movies I'm watching or books I'm reading there, uh, and a blog called, uh, hard-boiled wonderland. Uh, please go buy copies of my book, buy multiple copies of my book because, uh, I've got plumbing issues to fix and braces to keep on my kids at this point. So, um, yeah, that's all I got.
2: Buy his stuff, you animals, buy it. (laughs) Jedediah Jedediah airs. Peckerwood, It's an amazing book. It's on Amazon. Go grab, like grab a copy, give it, grab multiple copies. Use a stock. Give it stuff to people you period.
1: don't like too.
2: <laughs> it's you a great say, book. Hey,
1: this character <laughs> yeah. made me think of you and they will be very angry.
2: Thank you, Jed, for coming on. Thank you everyone for listening. And I'll see, and I'll see everyone next time for what has been for amongst increment vice guests the most requested scene in the film to record, featuring an act of wanton fellatio with a frozen fruit snack. Until then.
0: Congratulations, hippie scum, and welcome to a world of inconvenience. That's how Bigfoot announced himself today and how he introduced Doc to the big capital M mystery of inherent vice in what seems like a taunt. But is maybe a warning as the world turns even further from the cookie cutter framework of Bigfoot's 1950s and now from Doc's hippie haze 60s? Maybe it's a lament to a fellow mourner, a warning of the sorrow to come. Sorrow Doc still has precious time to avoid and Bigfoot tragically does not. Or maybe Bigfoot's just a fascist, frozen fruit-loving dick. Or maybe, maybe it's both. That's the fun of this character, this story, this movie. It can be all of those things, or none of those things, or some of those things, or any other potential cat's cradling of those things that you like. What's it all mean? Well, like Bigfoot Bjornsen, this world of inconvenience is something you have to figure out on your own. But we'll try to help, and we'll see what we can see next time on Increment Vice.